Okay, everyone. Good evening, good evening. Welcome to the Academy of Ideas Education Forum. For those of you who haven't been before, uh, we run discussions every half term or so for teachers and parents and anyone really who's interested in education. We also organise the Education Standards Big Battle of Ideas Festival every year, and we have a monthly column in Teach Secondary magazine, uh, which you should check out if you're anywhere near a school uh, or a branch at WH Smiths. Uh, we also like to uh, dig into topics that aren't getting the attention they deserve elsewhere, and we like to discuss them in an open and collegiate, but also no-holds-barred fashion. Um, so tonight I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Mike Fitzpatrick. Uh, Mike is a GP and he's also author of the books um, MMR and Autism, uh, What Parents Need to Know, and Defeating Autism, A Damaging Delusion. Uh, so we've invited Mike here today to talk on the topic, should school children be forced to have the MMR vaccine? The reason we're asking this question uh, is that measles is making a comeback or at least it is if you listen to the World Health Organization, which removed the UK's measles-free status last year. Uh, uptake of vaccinations seems to be on the decline, and within the last few months there's been a number of media reports about um, outbreaks of measles and mumps in UK schools. Uh, but until recently, uptake of the triple vaccine for measles, mumps and rubella was on the rise. So what's going on? Are the so-called anti-vaxxers... Uh, who argue that vaccines are dangerous and unnecessary, uh, winning ground in the battle for children's health? If so, why now? And how should we respond to that, if at all? Uh, do teachers and schools have a role to play in combating misinformation? Is this just a simple open and shut case of good science versus junk science, or is there more to it? Um, and if voluntary vaccination isn't working, should we go the way of the US? France, Italy and now Germany who have all made vaccination compulsory for anyone attending schools and have brought in fines and sanctions for parents and schools who don't play ball. Health Secretary Matt Hancock has said he's considering it. So I've asked people about this myself on social media and broadly speaking had two types of responses. One is, of course it should be compulsory, it's a no-brainer. And the other is, of course it shouldn't be compulsory, it's a no-brainer. So which suggests that, to me, that there is, you know, we've got two groups of people with very strong views who aren't really talking to each other very much. So uh, there is something that needs to be discussed here. Does the public good in reducing our collective vulnerability to illnesses such as measles trump the parental right to make decisions about the health of their children? And that's a sort of moral question we'd like to try and get into before. So Mike here has been deeply involved in this discussion for many years and back in the early 2000s was one of the few people campaigning to expose the claims that MMR uh, vaccine caused autism. Uh, let's hear what we're going to, he has to say today. Mike's going to speak for around 10 to 15 minutes to introduce the topic and then we'll have a chance about it. Welcome and over to Mike. Thank, Thank you, Harley. Thank you very much. Um, that was a very generous introduction. Um, you mentioned the World Health Organization. I think the World Health Organization sometimes, from people out there tend to think oh, it's a very prestigious sort of organization. I think from the perspective of general practice, it has the same sort of relationship to health as FIFA has to football. You know, it's a sort of corrupt and bloated bureaucracy that's more concerned with money and politics than it is with the main the focus of its concern. But... To come to the, the MMR measles controversy, um, I, I talked about this at the Battle of Ideas recently, and I was at that 
time, I just had a, the honour of an article being published in the Daily Mail. And I have to say, I come along again tonight with the honour of having another article published in the Daily Mail. And I seem to be, uh, I've arrived at this stage in life where every now and again I'm called upon to write Andrew Wakefield, my part in his downfall, you know, <laughs> episode 13, you know, uh, because I, as hard as I was involved in this controversy for a long time ago, and... Um, What's interesting about the Daily Mail is people may not have been, may not have, I, I mentioned the article because I suspect attenders at the, this forum may not be regular readers of the Daily Mail and may have missed the article, so I'm just making that point. Um, but also, the, the history of it is interesting because 10, 15 years ago, the Daily Mail was in the lead of the campaign to support Andrew Wakefield. And uh, by no means on its own, but it was played a very leading role, particularly f notoriously published a three-part series of two or three-page articles by the great Melanie Phillips, who was then the highest-paid journalist in British journalism, and uh, all a chapter and verse in support of Wakefield. And so this dramatic about-turn has happened. The Daily Mail's appointed a new editor recently, seems to be part of the Brexit fallout, but nonetheless, he has identified a campaign to promote the uptake of the MMR and disclaiming any uh, 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 attempt to link MMR and autism. And the whole tone of it is completely reversed. And it's that reversal, I think, which is an interesting point of departure for this whole discussion, that the climate around this whole thing has completely changed over the last 10 or 15 years. And the, the symbol of that, really, is the status of Andrew Wakefield, because... Back then, in the early 2000s, Wakefield was a very popular figure, and his whole theory was widely promoted. Private Eye uh, did a, a, what they've never done in relation to anything else. They published an entire special issue, 20-odd pages, entirely devoted to supporting the Wakefield case. Other, journal, other newspapers were highly supportive. The Daily Telegraph played a very big role in supporting it. The uh, Lorraine Fraser, the Daily Telegraph journalist, won the Health Reporter of the Year Award in 2003 for her articles which were, she could spin any story uh, around this whole area in, to, to give it a pro-Wakefield slant. So, you know, the climate of that time was, was uh, uh, very uh, uh, remarkable in its how, how different it is now. December 2003, Channel 5 uh, had this two-hour evening docudrama published, which was called um, Hear the Silence, a drama featuring Hugh Bonneville, now of Downton Abbey, famous British character actor, playing the great Andrew Wakefield. Juliet Stevenson, star of the West End stage and screen, playing a feisty single parent uh, with an autistic son fighting for justice, Andy Wakefield heroically supporting her. That was the, the, the spin of the time, and it was a very popular popular one. Rule, turn on the, the, the time to last year, and... Uh, Actually, before the, the uh, going back to 2016, Andrew Wakefield, uh, having been struck off the, the story, I think is the outlines are familiar. Was struck off the medical register when his research was shown to be fraudulent, and uh, went off to the states and uh, latched onto some private autism clinics there. And uh, because he can no longer pursue any sort of medical career, started making he does celebrity TV appearances, and he made a film called Vaxxed, From Cover-Up to Catastrophe, which was, again, promoting his whole uh, cause. But what was interesting about the contrast between Vaxxed and, and uh, Hear the Silence 10 years earlier, 10, 15 years earlier, was that Vaxxed was 
couldn't get a distributor. It was uh, uh, withdrawn from film festival, the Tribeca Film Festival in New York, despite the support of uh, Robert De Niro, who was an autistic son and was also supporting Wakefield, where it was always been very good at getting celebrity sponsorship of one sort or another. Um, nonetheless, Vax hardly saw the light of day and uh, uh, it was obliged to get a bus and had one of those country western singers that go around the country with a big bus with Vax on and stopping in towns and showing it there was the only way it could get any showing. Um, and Wakefield became a pariah and couldn't get any publicity at all anymore, whereas once he was the darling of the, of the breakfast TV couches, nobody wanted to give him airtime. And, and the medical world turned on him also. The medical world had tended to ignore Wakefield, hoping, hoping he'd go away. The, the, the vituperative terms that he was referred to, it was almost they went into competition with one another to see so he could be most abusive of him. Somebody described him as a money-grubbing huckster. Uh, you know, it's just a, 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 a money-grubbing fraudster. That was the sort of terms of, uh, in which he was seen in the medical world. So... The, the latest thing is, is uh, people may have missed, missed Vax 1. We've now got Vax 2. This is the occasion of my most recent article for the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail rang me up and said, did you know Wakefield's got a new film out and he's being wants to show it in West London and there's a big campaign to stop it being shown. Could you write an article, you know, your Andrew Wakefield, your part in his downfall, uh, to, you know, in, in response to this? I said, well, yeah, I'd be very happy to write a... Uh, you know, critique of Wakefield, but I don't agree with the film being banned. I think the film should be shown so people could see it and make their own minds up and have a discussion about it. Because suppressing these things only gives encourages encourages them and indulges their martyrdom complex, which is very uh, very profound. And uh, it was quite interesting their response because they said, oh, "Hold on a minute, that's a bit, that's a bit of a strange thing." Hold, hold, hold! I'll get on to the editor. I'll get back to you. So an hour later, I'm back saying. We put that to the editor, and he said, yeah, yeah, uh, sure, this, yeah, that sounds counterintuitive. You know, I thought you'd be dead in favour of being, no, I said, but anyway, I said, let's go with that. So I wrote the article, and in fact, they spanned the article in a much more free speech angle than I had originally intended. I was quite pleased with it in the end, so, uh, because, it, you know, I wasn't in favour of it being banned. I, think, I don't think that's a very helpful way of dealing with these uh, which is, of course, one of the themes that's come to the fore in recent times that people uh, have the idea that, uh, you know, that Wakefield, that the anti-vaccine cause in general is getting more publicity through the Internet and through various ways. And the way to deal with it is by suppressing it, by setting up, getting the computer, uh, for, you know, the uh, Facebook and Twitter and all these organisations to uh, ban these uh, websites or these uh, threads in whatever way they can which it seems to me is always entirely counterproductive it's much more useful to have promote the widest discussion and you know, have the debate about what the, the, the benefits and risks of vaccination actually are so that's the, the, the broad context I think of the current just to set a bit of background to it and I think what's happened now is that, as one American commentator says, the vaxxers, we all love to hate the anti-vaxxers now. The anti-vaxxers in the past were regarded as, as countercultural and a bit subversive. Now they're regarded as a public menace and everybody hates them and wants to suppress them and ban them in one way or another. And there's some of the, to turn to some of the issues that Harley raised, I think that the... the the three issues that are uh, at the centre of the current discussion are, one, the question of the measles crisis, 
the idea there's been a great resurgence of measles. Two, that there's been a significant decline in vaccine uptake. And three, that that decline is a result of the influence of the anti-vaccine campaigners in one way or another. So just briefly on all of those things, I have argued in the past that I, I don't believe that there is a significant measles crisis. There have been outbreaks of measles. There was a significant outbreak of measles last year in this country. There was a significant outbreak of measles in the area where I was working in Hackney, uh, largely based in the Orthodox Jewish community, which has a historically low vaccine uptake, and where there have been outbreaks of measles from time to time over the last uh, 10 or 15 years uh, of a significant size. And uh, But the, uh, there wasn't any real indication that last year's outbreak was really that much bigger than any of the previous ones. And what people tend to do is to conflate measles figures in different parts of us. So I say there's, there's very high rates of measles in third world countries in Africa and Asia, which is entirely different epidemiological conditions and is not a useful, you know, you can cite the number of world cases of measles. It's not particularly relevant to the vaccination discussion in Britain. And even conflating the European figures so that there's, there's a significant outbreak of measles in the Ukraine where there's a civil war been going on for the last few years. There's a significant outbreak in uh, other Eastern European countries, notably Romania and Albania, where there's the historically not very well organised public health service. There's a significant outbreak in southern Italy, equally where, the, despite there being fairly compulsory policies over a long period of time, they've never, never been very effectively uh, the vaccine uptake has never been very uh, high there. So th- those situations are not really directly comparable to the situation in Britain. And uh, as I say, I don't think there's any great evidence that the, the measles is a bigger problem than it has, has been in recent years. The second issue is about the, the, the vaccine uptake has significantly fallen. Now, what, if you look at the, 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 some of the public health authorities in England used to get really annoyed at the whole, at the height of the Wakefield thing, because people would say, oh, the uptake of MMR has really collapsed, it's a disaster. <clears throat> in fact, the uptake of MMR only ever dropped about 10% across the board, from about 90% in the, in the, before the Wakefield scare started, to drop to about 80%. Of course, it was pockets where it was lower than that, because it was lower uptake to start with. But it was only about a 10% drop overall. And over the years since then, that uptake has gradually got back up again over 90%. Now, over the last couple of years, it does seem as though there's been a 1% or 2% fall in that. But that's, you know, it's, it's not insignificant, but it's not a catastrophe either. And then there, there are reasons to, to question whether the way in which the vaccine services are organised, the provision of clinics, the accessibility of clinics, the uh, uh, level of uh, staffing of clinics, the number of... Mid- of um, Health visitors, for example, has significantly dropped over, the, over that period of time, uh, who are the key health personnel uh, dealing with it. General practices in a state of some de- crisis in terms of staffing, particularly of the, nurse, the nursing and GPs. Uh, and that's, you know, I would argue, a, a more significant factor in, in this than anything else. The question of... The, the, and this is a particular issue that Simon Stevens, the head of the National Health Service, is, and, and is taken up by politicians, is inclined to promote, oh, the big problem here is that the anti-vaxxers are, have a great influence through social media and they're getting, uh, uh, you know, the bots and trolls are playing a role in this, no doubt. You know, people see conspiracy theories and all that. But uh, the, the idea that there's a, a great upsurge of anti-vaccine sentiment surging through the internet and having a greater influence than it did uh, in the past, I don't think that's true either. I mean, I think 
some of the anti-vaccine campaigns 10 or 15 years ago were more on a larger scale. They had big conferences and, and they're, 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 all, they're there on the internet and they, they have their, uh, their uh, uh, you know, per- personalities and their conferences. But I think they're, they're no more influential than they ever been in, ever have been and probably less in my view. Simon Steve wants to block the homeopaths because the homeopaths tend to promote an anti-vaccine. But again, the homeopaths have always been around. I don't think there's any particular uh, evidence of them being um, either more numerous or more influential than they ever have been. So I think that's a bit of a red herring. And I think what we're seeing here is actually this, this whole sort of... There's almost an upsurge of anti-anti-vaccine sentiment, which is on a bigger scale than it was before. And it's almost like the anti-anti-vaccine sentiment is more... Uh, uh, aggressive and vituperative than the pro-vaccine sentiment, than the than the anti-vaxxers. Uh, uh, so to put it, the the, the pro-vaccinated, contradicting myself with double negatives here, but the pro-vaccine cause has become more um, aggressive and uh, uh, and abusive of, of uh, in public discussion, rather familiar familiar from the Brexit kind of discourse. Uh, of which I think it can be seen as as a part, because one of the issues that uh, clearly the 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 anti-vaccine cause has a, a tendency to become politicised. So Trump has endured, given a bit of an endorsement. Wakefield appeared at one of Trump's inauguration presidential inauguration rallies, had himself, himself photographed uh, with uh, with Trump. Uh, the Italian uh, populist parties have flirted a bit with the anti-vaccine cause. Uh, equivocated on it. They all tend to equivocate when they get in any position of having to implement public health decisions <coughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, so there's a, a sort of a, a link up there with, with populist policy and hence the, 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 pop, the mainstream uh, traditional liberal hostility to populism is also expressed in relation to the anti-vaxxer cause. So just to conclude on the question of coercion then, because that's what comes out of this, is there's a growing call in this wider context to say, look, we're, you know, we've got to have a more uh, a coercive policy to ensure that kid parents get their kids vaccinated. And the, the most favoured policy in this area is to introduce mandates, which is a bit of interest to people in the education world, to introduce school mandates, which is a common uh, practice in the United States, where basically if you bring your kids to school, you've got to show that they've had the full uptake of immunisations. And there's a very good reason for that, because people say, you know, uh, it's important that kids uh, at school have a high level of vaccination to protect, uh, prevent outbreaks from occurring, but also particularly to prevent that small number of children who, for one reason or other, are immunocompromised, have uh, uh, some either condition or treatments which make them, uh, uh, that they can't have uh, vaccinations like MMR to provide protection for them. So uh, that's the, the argument is that a school, a school mandate should be introduced in Britain. I think, um, and yeah, as I say, that's a policy which has been enforced in the States for, for some years. Um, I think there are, you can broadly uh, uh, make pragmatic and principled arguments against that. I think there's a pragmatic argument against it on the simple grounds that it's it's uh, unnecessary that if we if services were properly organised and people were uh, there were systems to uh, at the level of primary healthcare to 
you can contact parents when their kids' immunisations are due, to follow them up, to make sure clinic times are accessible, to make sure baby clinics are properly run, to make sure that uh, staff are there who are well, well trained in terms of uh, uh, dealing with the sort of concerns and questions that people have about vaccination, which is, you know, it does require quite a high level of training because, you know, the issues involved in, it, in all the whole range of immunisations are quite complicated and uh, people have a lot of concerns and uh, people need to be trained and equipped to answer them. So that whole, I think most people involved in the area of vaccination policy tend to favour emphasis on those sort of issues, at least uh, in the, as a primary uh, uh, thing. The, the other pragmatic argument is simply that to understand, that, or to, to recognise the, the high danger that any such uh, authoritarian plan are likely to be counterproductive, that parents are likely to refuse to have their kids immunised, if they make it conditional upon going to school, then children are going to be withdrawn from school, they're going to be homeschooled with all the consequences, of mainly negative, that that's likely to have for them. Um, uh, and the, you know, the, the, the children who are most likely to suffer for, in their education are children who are most in need of education. Uh, 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 that would be the likely consequence of that. So uh, I think that's a, uh, there's a, a very strong pragmatic argument. I think there's an argument in, on grounds of principle too, you know, that, that it's, uh, there is an issue of personal autonomy about making decisions about immunisation and about the rights of parents to make decisions about their own children, which should be trespassed upon you know, only in extreme situations. If it's, if it, and that, that, this is true of public health measures in general against infectious diseases. There is a case for quarantine against very serious and very highly contagious infectious diseases. Uh, but those policies need to be uh, uh, justified by the level of seriousness, by the risks of infection, uh, and uh, the, 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 you know, the downside of that being the, the extent to which people are prevented from making their own decisions about their own lives and about their own children's lives. So I think, on balance, and we had this discussion quite interestingly at the Battle of Ideas with Alberto Giubellini, who is a an Oxford philosopher who's argued for the case for uh, coercive immunisation policies. And I think the, the, uh, the burden of opinion, I think, in the, in the medical world is that it's an interesting discussion in a way because I think the closer people are to the baby clinic, the less keen they are on coercive measures because they, they understand that the, the subtleties of the discussions that have to be taken place with parents they understand the importance of, the, of getting the practical arrangements right and they, they have a sense of the, the danger of uh, hitting people over the head with a cudgel uh, when it's uh, entirely unnecessary to do so. Thank you very much. That's, uh, thank you, Mike. So uh, we're going to have a discussion now. Um, for those who haven't been before, uh, this is not a Q&A for Mike. This is uh, a chance to uh, challenge him, if you want, um, to raise any thoughts that are going through your head, explore um, explore them in, in this room with us all. Um, we encourage you to give your names when speaking, if, you, if you're happy to. We will be recording this for the website, um, so if there's anything, but we do want people to speak openly, so if there's anything you say that you would like me to edit out, come and speak to me um, afterwards. Um, so I just want to actually start by asking um, the direct question: if, if you believe that schools should um, force, or, or that school children should be forced to have the MMR vaccine in whatever form that might take, should they be forced to put your hands up? 
should they should schools should children be forced to have their MMR vaccine? Well, I've got one in the room, I think maybe two. So I'd say we're not a hundred percent representative, at least the people I've been I hearing think your from. Your terminology is possibly the wrong question. Children okay. wouldn't be forced to have it. Yeah, that's that's the crux of the matter. Could, and you get, have a go at phrasing it better than, than I. Um, could. Required. 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 So you can't force. Go it's a fair point. You can't force sit down. Well, I don't think you can force in a, a humane society force a child to have it. But there are sanctions you can provide, like not to let them into the school and so on. So, um, does that change the the number of hands up if the question is asked slightly differently? <laughs> I think we're still. Um, Probably not particularly uh, representative of the rest of Twitter, at least. Um, anyway, let's see what comes out during the discussion. Um, just one follow-up question before. Can you hands up if anyone would like to kick us off. Um, to, I'm just going to ask a quick follow-up question, which might help bring out a few things. Do you think schools should play any role in combating the, the sort of misinformation around vaccines? Well, I think it's useful if, if children have some education in the basics of uh, uh, immunisation, you know, the, the importance of immunisation historically and at a certain age appropriate in terms of, uh, you know, their education in, in biology and science to, to know about immunisation, to recognise the historic contribution of childhood immunisation to the improvement of public health over the past century. I think that will be very useful and it provided why that provides a framework then in which as they grow older they can uh, have you know gain wider knowledge about I mean one of the issues in schools uh, uh, is the uh, the vaccines that uh, the HPV the human papilloma virus vaccine for, for the prevention of the human uh, the vi virus that's associated with cervical cancer which is given to teenagers young young uh, teenagers um, and so that's a useful issue of discussion. But that doesn't, you know, the thing about the the uh, the measles MMR discussion. Of course, these immunisations are preschool, so it's not really. There's not the school education itself are not directly relevant to it. So the decision comes about that the parents, the parents, and future. Okay, we had um, this gentleman here, and then um, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think follow up that point. There is an issue about educating parents of the future, and it's not just vaccines; it's how to handle evidence, if you like. So when you read something in the newspapers, how do you know whether it's true? Uh, my question for Mike was going to be: the ethical issue is quite an interesting one because if your child is not immunised, they are at risk. But they're also a potential source to somebody else. And what tends to happen in schools now is child gets measles, that child is kept off. But often children who are the immunosuppressed children are also kept off. And that seems wrong. And even great libertarians like John Stuart Mill would say your liberty can be limited when you're potentially going to do harm to others. So an analogy might be passive smoking. We haven't made smoking illegal, but we do make the passing on of your smoke and carcinogens illegal to other people. So I think there are ethical arguments that could be in favour of making it compulsory. I think the pragmatic ones trump it. I don't believe anyway that the ethics is strong enough. But I don't think it's a one-sided libertarian argument. 
Sorry, I forgot to ask your name. Uh, David Ellman. David. I'm a pediatrician. And, uh, um, and I instinctively want to make um, anything compulsory. Um, but I think there is, and it's really taking up what you said, there is a problem about what parents believe and how, how could it be in the early 2000s that, you know, Wakefield had the influence that he had, the science was believed, and the, particularly media, and I think the, the role of the media was really important, you know, took it up and made it so that, you know, people were taken along by it. Now, we now have a counter position, as you say, but, um, you know, where, where, where do people, how do people, Right, when everything, anything emerges, and I think actually passive smoking is another thing. I, is it not the case that the jury's out about passive smoking? I don't know. But there, there are so many questions around about, so what do people in, and, and what is it that perhaps there can be a, a guide, some sort of guiding principle that we might have? I don't know. Uh, people want the best for their children, that's for sure. Any others at the stage? Um, Karen, a biology teacher in Hackney. Um, I mean, in terms of you know, covering it in school, you know, we do a key stage three, we do a key stage four, we do an A level biology, and we go through the science of and we use expert cases, immunisation. Um, and when we look at the, the numbers for Hackney, in your article on the Daily Mail, it's like 65 66% uptake in Hackney. So we're talking about local cases. Um, I, I'm curious as to why um, with London, um, I think it was like seven to six percent of the loans. I'm not sure eighty-six percent for England as an average. Why there are in, in a big population centre which does have pretty good proximity to healthcare and so on, and, and maybe you can speak to your own experience in Hackney. And um, why the live uptake would be so low? And obviously, in somewhere like Hackney, you can't account for it entirely. By the Orthodox Jewish population, it's ten thousand people, and upper of it would come twenty thousand. Um, so that wouldn't account for the fact that one third of children are not immunised. I, I don't know if that thing was by school age, I'm not sure. Um, why is it so low? Is it that people like me are doing a rubbish job of educating the next generation of parents? What can we put that down to? Yeah. Um, anyone else? Um, you said that the newspapers is a um, achieve rationality just like that. I wondered how that had happened <laughs> and if it could be translated to other issues. Sorry. <laughs> the rational swing of the newspapers from irrationality, as you were saying, at Wakefield time to rationality now. How did that happen? And can you uh, envisage that being applied to other areas, you know, like climate change? <laughs> Um, just to re-emphasise the whole autonomy thing, um, it's wonderful to be autonomous and have your freedoms. I'm never going to say it isn't, but you do live in a society, you do live in a community, and if it means that community stays safe and healthy, surely you need to live in that freedom. Thank you. Um, just and the gentleman there. Hi, um, Mike Nicholl, I'm a student biology teacher, but a recovering biologist in my past career. 
Um, and so my, my thoughts on the sort of whether uh, you have compulsory vaccination actually does sort of skew on a virological front because measles is acutely contagious and to actually engender a herd immunity with measles compared to many other viruses you need an awfully high percentage of the population to be vaccinated. So, and it needs to be upwards of 90%, so you can see that London is woefully unprepared for an outbreak. So I, I take your point of how big an outbreak do we currently suffer, but I would also say how much of an outbreak could you suffer in the future? It's, it's a question of risk. It's a future thing, it's not a current, it's not a current thing. Um, and therefore, in the case of measles as compared to um, other vaccinations that we, that we can give to children, whether there's more of a case for a compulsory vaccination in the case of measles, in specifically because you need to engender that herd immunity, as opposed to other vaccinations which you would recommend, but not to make a compulsory. Thanks. And just thinking about what you were saying, Connor, a second ago about um, Hackney, when I was reading uh, for this, uh, one, um, one of the things that caught my attention was, um, was the claim about it being uh, related to um, the Orthodox Jewish um, Charedi community. But then seeing in uh, the New York Times, all people had gone so far as to investigate it and claim that they'd traced the outbreak all the way back to Breslau, Hasidic Jews visiting the Ukrainian city of Amman in 2018, which sounds awfully specific for something the New York Times to do, and it starts to feel a bit anti-Semitic, to be honest. But I, I just feels like there's almost like that, that, that you know you mentioned earlier about it being actually the problem. Broadly speaking, is not that bad right now. It tends to be small groups that uh, where the outbreaks happen, um, mostly not in this country, but we're getting some here. Uh, it, it feels like this could end up being in a bit of a blame game um, for different faiths. Well. Just on that specific issue, that is a massive pilgrimage within the Hasidic community. And the Hasidic community is, is much bigger than, than that. And I think it's about the order of 30,000 rather than 10,000. So I wouldn't, I think it's, a, it's a very significant sized community. I think from a virological point of view, I think the case you make is strong. And I think one of the issues of the last 10 years that the virologists, I think, have been bemused that there hasn't been bigger outbreaks of measles in London, actually, than, than there have been, because the circumstances would seem to be, given what as you say, it's a highly contagious vaccine, <coughs> highly, high, highly infectious, so you need a 95% herd immunity to confer herd immunity. Uh, you know, so uh, it's been a bit of a surprise that there hasn't been bigger outbreaks. Why, why have there been outbreaks? I think there's a whole number of conditions in Hackney which contribute to that. There's a, a, a highly mobile population, because and it's one of the issues of the, the, that you've got a 30% turnover of GP registrations in a year, and that inevitably creates difficulties of people getting registered, getting their kids registered, if you've got to move to GP, getting them on the, on the registers in such a way as they're reminded when their immunizations are due. And all that, that's, those technical, practical issues are very important. Uh, you've got a number of different communities. You, you've got the the, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community is one particular community, and you know just on that, people used to have this idea: oh, there must be some 
religious reason for this. In fact, it, much research has gone into this term, so there is no great religious issue about it. The main problem is that in that community, people have a large number of children. And if you've got two or three children under the age of five, it's difficult to get them all down to the baby clinic. And the practical arrangements are far more important than any other consideration. Although the other vaccine concerns uh, exist in that community. One of the, the, the prejudices about any kind of community like that from the outside is that the community is homogeneous, which it isn't. It's highly heterogeneous in its views on these matters as it is on other matters. Uh, so, uh, but but um, the main issue does seem to be the practical issue of the accessibility of clinics, the issue of registration, the issue of uh, uh, you know health service staff being well attuned to dealing with the whole thing. On the issue of uh, the ethical issues, I mean, I, I think it is a there is a, a, a spectrum of concerns here. So if you've got a disease like smallpox, which is a very high level of mortality associated with it, and a very high level of, uh, of, of infectivity, then quarantine measures are justified, and historically they've been taken. In relation to the coronavirus at, at the moment, it's entirely legitimate to have strict quarantine measures to prevent its rapid dissemination, which seems to be a, a, definitely an issue. So I don't think... I, I agree with you who have said that you, you can't make absolute issues here. But I think in relation to the measles, you've got to take a balance of various things. I mean, one is the seriousness of the disease, which is another... I, you know, we used to have these... I remember in the, old, in the first phase of this argument... The anti-vaxxers, we used to always say, oh, measles is a trivial disease, no big problem. We all had measles as kids, you know, we have you know, that argument. And, of course, we always say, you know, from the point of view of people who've seen kids with measles and, and seen kids ill, seriously ill with measles, you know, we'd bend the, the, the stick, as they say, to say, look, you know, it's not, it can be a very serious, a significant rate. Yes, in, in healthy, most healthy children, it's not that serious, but there's a significant rate of complications even among healthy children. And so to get that balance right, is, is, so at the moment, uh, that I think there's a tendency to perhaps play up the seriousness of measles in the cause of, uh, uh, of uh, encouraging a more, more coercive policy. But I think that um, the, there is an issue of autonomy. Of, 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 the more issues over which uh, people's right to make their own decisions in life is taken away from them, the more you undermine uh, the, their, 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 you know, their personal integrity. And I think we've got whole areas of... On every single issue of health policy in this, you can make a good pragmatic case from motorbike helmets to seat belts to passive smoking, you know, the, the, all those arguments. But by the time you've, you've got the state taking your... Uh, controlling your behaviour in relation to all those things, there's almost not very much left of an area in which, uh, which you can determine what you're supposed to do. Or even in terms of, you know, the... The behavioural issues, you know, it's bad for people's health to smoke, to drink uh, more than a certain amount, to eat certain foods. And also, if by the time you've regulated all those sorts of things, people are going to have a fairly limited scope to determine any direction of their own lives. So I think you've got to, you know, it's, there's no absolutes in it. And I think you've got to take each case by case. And in relation to the specifics, that's one of the reasons why I think it's very important to look at the specific case of measles in Britain compared with measles in other in Europe is a different thing. Measles in the world is a different thing. In, and in, in relation to both the disease and also in relation to immunisation policy, it's one of the things. If you talk to people in the states uh, in, in primary health care and public health, they they think that mandate, the school mandate is 
you know, they've always they've had that for 30 years in the States and they regard that as, as quite normal. But that's not existed here and we've managed in the past to maintain a significant level of uptake without that level of coercion. So introducing it is a distinctive feature, you know, something which has to be justified in relation to the specific conditions of, that exist here. So I think um, these are complicated issues and they've got to be dealt with uh, in their specific uh, uh, forms. Uh, just think about the, the point um, you made, David, before about um, about sort of you know educating uh, about the truth and facts and science and so on. Um, we've had lots of discussions in over the years uh, as a group about um, media literacy, which is tangent, you know related to what you're saying or, or overlaps with it. Which is you know there's lots of misinformation more generally about, out there about all kinds of things, and the feeling that you could teach children how to spot it. But what that seems to mean in practice is usually you end up telling the kids who to who to pay attention to and who to avoid, rather than because there's no way for them to tell on the basis of the arguments, um, and it ends up engendering cynicism. So, you know, is there a risk that you know who, who decides what is the right information here? Uh, I'm, I'm also just thinking about what you you were saying. If, if what you say is right and actually there isn't a crisis, isn't the claims of a crisis an example of misinformation in itself that we should be fighting against, perhaps. But anyway, anyone would like to pick up on anything that's been said so far? I just wondered from um, your comments about how there don't seem to be a larger body of anti-vaxxers nowadays. I wonder whether um, whether you miss a crucial group of sort of the vaccine hesitant except because Obviously, if you have people promoting vaccination and you have a lot of people saying that vaccination is terrible, um, for a lot of people in the middle who aren't really involved in the debate, what, well, I've always tripped into it for myself, what the people in the middle see is they see a debate and they're not sure. And actually, if you're a parent of young kids, the main thing that you're anchoring on is, I just don't want to hurt my child. And there seems to be a debate. Better just sit out. You know, they don't necessarily swallow either story whole. They just say, oh, I don't want to damage my child anyway. And whilst this seems scary and I should vaccinate my child, also there are these people here saying that I could do this thing and hurt my child so maybe I'll just sit down. Do we have any sort of idea of how big a group that is? Because they definitely exist. We have here, I should say, that the uh, some of the leading British experts on child immunisation programmes, so we can get some expert opinion here. Um, um, so I'm Herbert from UCL. I, although the vaccine uptake has gone down a bit over the last five years, it's about five percent, three percent overall. Uptake rates are very good. Public Health England surveys everywhere, and what they find is vaccine confidence is higher than ever. Most parents get their children immunised. So I, I mean, I would question. First of all, I would question whether how how accurate the data are. So we're in London, there's all the problems of being in London. There may also be problems in getting accurate data because if we really did have these levels of susceptibility, we'd have massive outbreaks and we're not seeing them. So, you know, I think it's probably better than recorded. And there, are, there have been um, studies where they've gone into various districts just to clean up records and just by cleaning up records, getting rid of people that aren't there and all that kind of thing, you can increase your uptake quite substantially. Right. So there's a, probably a problem with data. 
as much as anything else, and that's all to do with services and pressure on GPs and the whole business. So, question for people generally: what, Why are people, if, if that's the case, why are people assuming the worst and assuming that the anti-vaxxers? Well, because it's a good story. It's a great story for the media that we've got all these rabid anti-vaxxers, and I think in America there is a very well-organised, well-financed, you know, anti-vaccine movement. But I think actually part of that is because vaccination is mandatory. That's what people are objecting to, the fact that they have to have their children in their lives. I don't know if everybody heard, there was a Radio um, 4 show uh, a few weeks ago called The Misinformation Virus. I'm just trying to find the, um, the oh yeah, the phrases they used to describe um, sort of anti-vaxxers and parents and so on who are spreading, apparently spreading information about, or misinformation about the emotional contagion um, what was that? I think, yeah, the, and, and misinformation as a virus, so it's like it's a disease that's out there as well. Anyway, Kevin, I saw you with your hand up. Yeah, I think, uh, just thinking about it, I think that the, you know, what's interesting about this conversation is like, it's quite, quite to a large extent, a medical type of conversation, a health conversation, and with the education forum. And so it's a really interesting intersection between two different things going on. Can I think out loud and tell you, the guy on my right, whose name I just didn't quite catch, was mentioning J.S. Mill, and the spirit of talking about, you know, what the limits of freedom should be. What, I, what is interesting for me as a teacher is that line between public and private, between the parents and the school, is not fixed, and it's very fluid. And it seems to me that the cultural wind is blowing in one direction, and the direction is to basically effectively colonise the space of parents and what was previously the private domain of the family certain decisions. And certain incidents might seem random, but I think you can make a case to sort of frame them into a particular direction of travel. So parents now having to pay fines for taking their kids out of school and going on a holiday. And parents now not being allowed to keep their kids at a particular school and being brought to court because they transgressed the uniform or the kids' hairstyle is not right. Sex relationships, education, the, the, the line changing on that as to what was briefly the, the responsibility of parents. And even what kids are put in the lunchbox, not, not being allowed in the school with certain foods which are deemed unhealthy. All of those you can absolutely say, well, the school's right. But the more interesting thing is that the line is changing. And I, you know, here in the staff room, and I accept it's utterly anecdotal, overwhelming support to not let kids anywhere near school unless they're um, being vaccinated and so on and so forth. That was the first thing. The second thing is about, um, you know, educating parents. When someone mentioned, how can we get, you know, better media literacy or how can we improve that? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you go right back to Wakefield, it wasn't a lack of education. What struck me about the Wakefield scenario was the parents were ridiculously well educated. They were overwhelmingly middle class, upper middle class, if anything, bohemian types, or whatever you want to call them. Sorry, my work class sort of just come out against that, that crowd. So, so I don't think it's an education issue. There's something else going on. It, there's a, there, it's, it's politics. It's a, a broader political, cultural issue that I think was driving that whole, whole issue, and maybe it still is. And I think if you, if you go like, the guy mentions uh, global warming. How about this for maybe a tiny slate? Look, I don't think there's many people 
going around saying global warming's not happening, right? You get done, you may have a few people, but, but, but here's the issue. People think that it's up to school. Schools should put that right to educate them. This is a black and white issue. It's a rational issue. My, my point would be this. Okay, global issue. Uh, by the way, this is what schools will say. Schools will say global warming's a major problem, right? So we need to be more sustainable. At that point, I would ask, but surely you'd say, hold on, global warming's happening. It's a critical question. What do we do about it? The benefits of um, industry and modernity are such that over, overall it's been worth it. Let's have a technical fix, build better flood defences, whatever, whatever, whatever. Here's the point that I'm trying to get to is, is people are, are looking for like, education or school or whatever to try to solve what is often a broader cultural political problem. And I just wonder, not completely, Mike, I'm not a doctor, but even with this whole MMR thing, it seems to be that the problem or the solution is not even to be found in education. It's, it seems to just be a, almost a political dispute on here with a certain section of people who just don't trust the medical profession or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I wonder the extent to which you can always win all of those people around. I accept. Uh, I could be wrong. Sure. Um, just on that, Kevin, I heard down two things. When you were talking about the anti-anti-vaxxers, and I wrote down the word smoke. Um, there's definitely a, a thing of, of, of people liking to say you're an idiot for yeah. thinking that. You know, what do you mean climate change isn't real? You're not seeing a data, you moron. You know, like how dare you vote Brexit, you embrace this bigger blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. There's an element of that. And then on the other side, you have that sort of anti-establishment. Well, no, how dare you tell me what I think and how dare you tell me what I do. And in terms of the anti-vaxxers, when you picturing it as the middle class, could that be the middle class version of anti-establishment without actually going out and breaking any laws or protesting but saying, you know, this is my sort of little rebellion I can have in my, in my sort of lovely postcode area. Um, but the other one I wanted to ask you, because you were talking about how immunization stays up and why should we make a mandatory if immunization stays high? Would you change it if uptake was low? If the MMR uptake got to, let's say, 67% nationally, would you, would you recommend mandatory? Well, I think it depends, you know, you can't take that, that particular aspect in isolation. You know, I agree with that, a lot of what you said there. I think it, that's one element in the whole picture. Uh, if it did drop to that level and there's significant outbreaks, it certainly does shift that, that argument in favour of a more, you know, uh, uh, aggressive policy. But you have to also then look pragmatically at whether that's, you know, is that really the problem? Is that likely to work? So I'm going back to your point earlier. I think there, there I mean, I very much agree with Helen's point about the, the, the data. Uh, you know, if you're in the baby clinic, you know, the, the process, the data recording thing is so primeval. You know, they're still writing batch numbers on the forms, you know, the baby clinic. Well, I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, the the, the what the, the, to the extent the official figures capture the reality is dubious. But I, that said, that I think there is an issue, as you say, of uh, you know people who are not rabid anti-vaxxers, but are, are anxious, have various concerns and ideas about their child, the vulnerability of children's immune systems and all these issues. And I think the important thing is to create a framework within which a discussions can be ha had with the, and those concerns ventilated. People have all sorts of different concerns about something that's happened in the past, 
past experiences in their own family, past experiences of friends, and they need to be, you need to have a framework within which they can be discussed and, and hopefully people can be reassured. And you, know, and you need to have the staff with the relevant expertise and capacity to have that and the, the time and space to do it. So I think those are the, 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 the really important things. And I think it was very striking. We had this discussion of the, the Battle of Ideas conference. It was very interesting. The, the, there was the Oxford ethicist, and then there was a parent of a young child who expressed a lot of these anxieties in a very poignant way. You know, I have my precious new baby, and I you know, really don't want to have a whole load of different needles stuck into it. And you sort of think, well, you know, what's he going to do? Call the police to deal with this bloke? You know, is that going to reassure him no it's not you know it's going to be entirely counterproductive you know you, that, that's that's just not a useful way of, of tackling that those sorts of concerns and i think that's uh, uh, or indeed you know saying that the child can't go to school unless he has the immunizations you know, or any of those other measures okay um and i i just want this thing's been bugging me about this herd immunity mm. uh, you mentioned 90 percent um most of the stuff i've seen out there the official stuff says 95 percent yeah um it, it you know it, it feels a bit like you know alcohol quotas you know 14 units it was 21 units a year ago you know is it are some of these things just a bit made up um the and, and, and so, so all I'm saying really is not that I'm doubting there's such a, a concept as herd immunity, but sometimes it feels like the, these things are maybe overstated and we've been asked to take this up on absolute faith, but um, actually there may be a little bit more reason to go for doubt. Um, anyone else want to come back? Forgive me, I'm, I'm sort of thinking aloud again, a bit like Kevin was, but... I'm normally right behind Kevin on let's not use education to fix the problems of society. Um, on this, I can't, I can't let go of the idea that... So let, let me start. So when I, when I told a colleague um, where I was going tonight and what, what we are going to talk about, and of course, inevitably, she mentions corona and vaccination for that. Anyway, this, this ordinary... Managerial type says to me, of course, with Corona, I think it's all deliberate. I think, you know, I think they've just released a thing deliberately. And I'm sort of staring at them thinking, how can you think that? You know, how can you think like that? Um, and so I think there is, there is an education issue there. And going back to what you were saying about educating about the principles of immunisation and the historical context and everything else. Um, I, I wonder to what extent has education become so degraded that, uh, that these kind of issues chip in with the biologists, um, that these kind of issues just aren't really taught. <coughs> Uh, in a satisfactory way anymore. It's, there does seem to be an element that if you interpret any kind of either vaccination programme or spread of a virus as in some way motivated by m malicious forces behind the scenes, um, surely that's got to go right back to the root of how you understand how the world works. And I just think that might actually be for once an educational issue. Um, 
Maybe expand on what you might have of works in relation to this. Because I, I think that kind of um, that kind of conspiratorial thinking uh, doesn't arise um, when you have a society that is is generally well educated. So I think it's a, it's a it's a signal that. So Kevin was saying with the MMR. First time round, these people were well-educated, they were middle-class, well-educated people. I suppose what I'm saying is, no, I think by definition they're not well-educated, middle-class middle or otherwise. And does that mean that there's a, a wider, broader problem with education? Uh, just because a bunch of middle-class people might think it doesn't mean those middle-class people were, were well-educated. They might have gone to the best schools in the area, but if the best schools in the area are leading them into that kind of conspiratorial way of seeing the world, that's not a good education. Guess that's as far as I can push this. Okay, Sean is jumping to get back in, followed um, by Connor and then Kevin. Just on that, like you've got, well, the Native Americans were given smallpox, so we have introduced diseases to areas in terms of that. And when you had the massive cholera outbreaks in London, it was largely ignored by the rich middle class because it was only poor people who were dying from it. So you could argue that was an orchestrated death as well. So I don't think it's wrong for someone to jump to this idea where a country has millions of people in camps possibly releasing a disease, maybe not intentionally. I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying I don't think it's an inherently unintelligent thing to say. I just History is sort of on that person's side as well as on your side in terms of well, how could you think a government would willfully kill people when history says many times a government will willfully kill its people, be it a disease or not. And there is a, some history of the medical profession leading people up the wrong path, maybe. <laughs> Present company. <laughs> uh, Connor. If, if I think back to your talk at the Battle of Ideas or your portion of that exchange with the fellow who... I don't think thinking of the same guy in the audience who's talking about his concern about the schedule of vaccinations that is, is it the same, I'm sure it's the same fellow we were talking about in the audience. Um, but if I remember right, if, if we're thinking of the same fellow, he did actually rely on the authority of science. So he said something, I'm not anti-science, I have a science background. He didn't specify what it was. I'm just wondering how common that is to rely on the authority of science while to some degree challenging what they see as some form of scientific orthodoxy and where that clashes with personal autonomy or how they perceive it. Um, and uh, that relates to a point that you made in your book. I don't know how much you, you, you know, this similar to the arguments you made in your book about MMR and autism. Um, we talk about the denigration of expertise. Because I see, you know, uh, to some sense, and I see it in lots of parallel arguments and stuff like should creationism be taught in schools and so on, where there's a, there's a to some degree, it feels to me that there's a denigration of, say, my expertise as a biology teacher with the expertise of people who know more about vaccination germanization or, or GPs or whatever. Um, but then still arguments that rely on the authority of science. And to me, those things have always seemed a little bit difficult to, to mesh. Uh, I, I can't quite understand that. And I'm sort of thinking through. But it's something that's always struck me um, in, in lots of arguments where there's some perceived debate about the science itself. And I think you talk about the fact that the, the mechanism of science itself isn't quite democratic. It's, I mean, we don't take a vote on what, on what we think. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't consensus, but that's not the same thing, obviously. Kevin? I just think, in terms of gods, we, we see this differently. I do think that 
<laughs> of course, I'm not anti-educational, and I like to think I'm rational, but we just see it different. I actually think the problem is not a lack of education. I think it's, you know, whether you want to call it a political problem or a cultural problem, there's something else going on in society. And I don't think it's something that you, you know, you, you can sort in a classroom or a school and so on and so forth. Now that's separate again to something that Mike was saying and some of the video was saying about, of course, you can give information about, you know, uh, diseases and illness and immunization and vaccination. That's completely, you know, a good idea. But in terms of like somehow getting people in a classroom, and knocking out these silly ideas that people have out of them. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think you're, you're wrong. I think you've got the wrong attitude. They're not the wrong attitude, God, but the wrong perception of what's going on. This is just not a lack of education on those people's part. And I, I do come back to the fact that some of the people involved in this are so highly intelligent and articulate. And this links me to a separate point. I'm sorry if I convolute and confuse the discussion. I don't have the answer and I can't articulate well. There's a parallel slightly listening to you Garth and some other people where I'm reminded of Michael Gove when he had a go at the experts. And I think Gove was right to have a go at the experts in the context in which he meant it. I don't think he was knocking down expertise per se. And so this is where the conversation does get quite difficult because there's an overlapping and intermeshing of different things going on. You know, at the level of obviously that we're talking about that we're talking about a particular conversation now about vaccinations, but I do think that line between broader society and culture and politics and, and and the expertise is is a messy line, and I don't think can just come and blue Peter style. Here's one of my priorities. Here's a bit of education for you. That's going to solve this issue. I don't think it's like that. I mean, what one thing people might want to be thinking about is why these different ideas are sort of catching people's imagination. I mean, just, just, it's maybe one of the reasons this is interesting because from where I stand, you've got a very popular sentiment in society that things should be as natural as possible, at least with some parts of society, you should, should try to keep your own life as natural and your child's life as natural as possible, and then vaccines don't fit with that at all on the face of it. On the other hand, you've got a very strong sentiment that science is the right thing and you know, science says therefore it's right and everyone should shut up. Um, and sometimes you have those two things playing out in the same people. Uh, they might be highly educated or not, but uh, but you know, the, there's a tension there. But there's probably other things going on as well. Ian wanted to say something. Yeah, I was wondering, based on the title, what you, you are suggesting the, the role of school should be exactly. Is it simply to when somebody comes into the school uh, at admission, you, you say, well, we'll need to see your vaccine evidence before we go on out in the school. Is that it? Is it just a sort of check? Um, or is it a role of, we, we're going to actually take an active role in persuading, we're going to get them in to do a talk, and this is why we want parents coming to our school to, we, this is why we support the government, well, you know, what exactly do you want schools to do? Um, do schools store data on the, who's got their vaccination done or not? Um, I'm confused as to this percentage. There must is it a survey? I mean, there must be evidence of. I mean, if you have a vaccine, you get a stamp or something. So why is the evidence in doubt? And would it be in doubt if everyone had to have it? How would you know who's had it and who hasn't? And on that point, I do remember. I think it was MMR that Tony Blair was once asked. So, you know, he was saying, yeah, people should have this done. Someone said to him, oh, you, your children are going to be done. 
six local children's centres um, where to find them. A year later, only one of those is still in existence um, due to cuts and other things happening. The, uh, Mike, would you like to come back on anything? Well, I was hoping David was going to come in on the herd immunity point. Were you, were you going to... This is question how accurate it is? Yes. Um, well, it would be difficult to say whether it's... There are numbers that tell you how infectious things are and worked out on the basis on the whole of the experience, but with some modelling thrown in. So to set a context, the range of infectivity of coronavirus, it said something like if one person is infected and walks into a room of totally non-immune people, they will infect something like two to four others. Um, for measles, the number is something like 14 to 18. So the number may not be totally accurate, but you've got an idea of the ball game. It is very, very, very different. Um, and because of that difference, that's why the numbers of people immunised has to be so much higher for measles than for some other illnesses. So it's very, very infectious. It is not as lethal as coronavirus, so you have to put that into the equation. Um, but one, I've got the floor, I would point out that there have been four people die of measles in the last 25 years, which is very good, except two of them were teenagers who had problems with their immune system. One was a 10-month-old baby, so they were relying on other people being immunised. They couldn't be. And the other one was a young adult, um, and I don't know his or her immunisation status. Um, so... And those numbers work usually. Um, there is good reason to think that London figures are not accurate. Um, it's now out of date. 20 years ago, I was involved in, in looking at that, and they were 10% below what they should have been. Um, and that's because the data recording was not very accurate. It's better now, but it's a highly mobile population and they register with a GP. Not all GPs send reminders and appointments, but by the time they do, they may have gone elsewhere. 
They may have gone elsewhere. Their records don't follow them. So they may remain unrecognized, or they may appear unrecognized. And that's at least part of the reason for London being a... What's the description? A something case. Um, but anyway, yeah. Applies to a lot of public health. Things um, I think one of the things that is not terribly helpful is to talk about people who are anti-vaccine in the same breath as people who want to ask questions, as Mike touched upon. There be quite a lot of people who want to ask questions, and a very high proportion of those, if they are given a sympathetic hearing by a knowledgeable person, will go along and be immunised. There will be some who have a healthcare belief that says orthodox medicine's not on, who may not be persuaded. But that's a very, very, very small number. And I would utterly agree with Mike, whatever discussion we might have about the ethics, you've got to deal with the other stuff first. You've got to have the right clinics, people who are going to talk to parents. I think I, I would be surprised if schools don't have a role, not in saying necessarily immunisation is a good idea, but how do you give credence to what you're being told? Because nobody else is going to do that. And you know, this applies across the board. It's, it's necessary for everything in life. Otherwise, you have people spending noodles and money on Gwyneth Paltrow's last something or other. We've got other hands coming up. Did you want to come back with anything? Yeah, well, I could, there's been so many points raised. But just one point I would like to emphasise is that the conspiratorial thinking, which there's a lot, as I don't think it's got anything to do with educational levels, but yeah, I think you've made this point at the back. So I think it's to do with the, the there's been a, obviously a proliferation of it over the last few years. Now it's to do with a sense of people being out of control of the society in which they live. There's a sense of global capitalism being a rampant system which is out of control of governments, it's out of control of any uh, particular uh, agency at, at national or international level. And people feel things happen to them in their lives over which they can have no influence. And political forces and movements of which in the past people had a sense could could express their interests or defend their interests, they have a sense that they no longer can. And you have this, therefore, increasingly random character of social and political life, um, which conspiratorial thinking then comes to the fore. You know, if I'm not in control of my life, then some sinister agency, whether it's Putin or, or bots or trolls or, uh, you know, and you know, the world Zionist conspiracy, you know, whichever, which obviously always has, it comes to the fore in relation to the, those sort of... I think so. I think that's very important. That sense of a lot, and I think that's also important in relation to this vaccine thing because it. And I think you made this point. It's almost like I, I, I can't have any control any area of my life. But I've, one thing I can do: I'm not having my child vaccinated. They're going to tell me what to do about that. And it's almost like you can make a stand in relation to that when you can't make a stand in relation to any other thing. And I think that has a certain sort of appeal to people, and particularly in a the sense they can club together a bit with other people in that. There's an element of that about it. Uh, and I, I think that's that's not to be underestimated. Scientific education, again, you know, scientific education doesn't confer wisdom in people's personal lives. You know, people, uh, I, I remember being really shocked at the height of this contro controversy 
particularly in relation to autism, talking to somebody with a a very high uh, level of uh, prestige in the world of autism scientific research, who was at the time pregnant. And we we got to talk about immunisation. I'm not having my baby immunised. And I was shocked because she was a very sophisticated scientist in the sphere of autism. But when it came to talking about her baby, she was just like anybody else, really. And the, the, the science went out the window. And, of course, that's not an entirely unfamiliar experience in life. You know, cognitive dissonance. You know, people uh, you know, have a scientific education. But does that act as a guide to your life? Not necessarily. Oh, now the hands are up. Uh, one, two, three, four. Let's say... Uh... The, the education question is a very interesting one and um, I don't know the statistics of vaccination but for climate change if you're a Republican the higher your level of education the lower likely you are to believe in it but um, and I think one explanation for that of course is that being more highly educated makes you more arrogant and um, <clears throat> in my youth I work for a life insurance company and they said, what you want to sell your insurance to are doctors, because these are professional people, and they've got a big understanding of this area. That means they feel they understand the other things in which they haven't got the slightest competence, and feel confident in making decisions about that. Um, so this is the educational point. Rather than simply teaching people about um, science, it's teaching them to be more humble, I guess and to take their expertise where it lies, to search out expertise, to search out people who know what they're talking about, and use that, rather than pretending that you can encompass the whole of human life and make decisions about that for yourself, which you can't. So, education point, not content, but that kind of thing. Is it Helen? Yes. Uh, so that's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a cognitive bias mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important. But what I was going to mention was this idea about uh, choice in vaccination. So through pregnancy, women are, make, are encouraged to make choices about you know, how they give birth and all those sorts of things. And then the baby's born and bam, you know, you can't choose vaccines. So is it surprising that a lot of parents are sort of responding to that negatively? Because, you know, we, we're trying to encourage women to, to have more choice. And that's an important time. It's taken away. Ian? Yeah, I'd only repeat how, how we ever know everyone has been vaccinated. I, mean, I don't understand how it would be clear. It doesn't seem to be clear the percentage of people who have up to now. And if it's compulsory, how are you going to know for sure? Do they have a card? What do they produce? What does the school know? What day does the school well, if, I mean, if you introduce mandation, you would have to have more robust systems. So you would have to ensure you have better data in the first place, because you can't have school nurses and teachers chasing people around that are vaccinated. But also, you would have to have everything else in place, because if it's a requirement, it's not fair to make it a requirement if it's difficult to get, because the baby clinics are difficult to access. So why not just do all that without making it mandated? You know, make yeah. it easier, get better records, all that stuff. Um, and they wouldn't need mandation. Well, the other thing is, if you have mandate, uh, as already is happening in the States, you invite fraud on a significant scale, mm-hmm. because people forge the documents. It's to... good for the medical profession. Yeah. <laughs> nice black market in certificates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gareth. 
Uh, I'm going to come back and have another go. Um, I mean, yeah, I completely agree, Mike, that the, uh, the conspiratorial thinking arises when people experience a lack of agency, a lack of uh, control over their own lives. I completely agree, but this... But I think there is a... I want to draw a line between something like uh, somebody who's not necessarily... Um, would necessarily describe themselves as political voting for Brexit. I, I divide a line between that and choices over immunisation, because I think to understand immunisation um, at whatever level, as, as you were making the point, is, is quite a... It is quite a technical thing. It does require a certain uh, level of understanding, a level of um, education. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of it is kind of counterintuitive when you, when you first encounter the, the topic um, as a child. Um, and so the, the education feeds uh, into this, and you yourself were saying that it's it's a it's a complex issue. It's it's about a balance of understanding. You know, at a certain level, one might um, think that compulsory vaccination is appropriate, whereas another level it isn't. Now, I think those are decisions that yes require wisdom, and I think that's my point really. That where education goes wrong and is going increasingly wrong these days is is it doesn't promote uh, wisdom. And I think that's the, the, the key issue here, that one needs wisdom to, to, to make these kind of quite technical decisions over, you know, so you might be in a situation where you understand immunisation quite well, but you have a religious belief, and, and, and in the balance of understanding, that religious belief is, uh, is supreme to all the others for you. I mean, I, I get that parents might... Uh, want to refuse this, even though they are educated. But that's not my point. My point is that you can't... Um, you can't make that decision unless you have a certain amount of education, which is actually, when you get into it, it's quite a sophisticated level of science education. Um, and I think that's going wrong. And um, secondly, that although conspiratorial thinking can play out in this area. So if you feel you've got a lack of agency, a lack of control, vaccination is one area, obviously, when people are sticking needles into your kids, that's obviously going to be an arena in which conspiratorial thinking can play out. However, the lack of control, or the lack of sense of control, the lack of sense of agency with the immunisation issue is coming from poor education on that subject uh, because this subject is different to say something like a political decision over who uh, is in charge of um, who has political power over you. I think, I think these two things are different and whilst conspiratorial thinking will play out in that arena, um, education plays a, a much bigger role in this area, immunisation, than it might in others which are more absolute I suppose. Issues of, of of uh, political freedom might be more absolute in other areas. Okay, we're coming to the end. Does anyone else want to say something, especially if someone's not spoken already? Um, 
feel free to hands up, please, um, before we all go to finish up and go to the pub. Um, there's a lady at the back. Um, yeah, my name's Anna. I'm a um, medical background. I go to school nurse. I've worked in America, do immunisation for children, and I work for lots of vets and we're doing all um, pro, um, all baby vaccines and studies about them and giving them that. I would say we, we don't educate, but we give information and people gain knowledge. And I think slightly different between being educated where someone is actually teaching you something and actually you giving information to someone so they can then have knowledge. Um, obviously, we have a whole different group of people who we're working with who are having to come forward, we vaccinated, we tested. Um, we have a lot of pregnant mothers at the moment, we have pertussis. Um, but because they are doing studies, they're obviously going to be pro-vaccine and we actually have people across the board, it isn't just academics, it isn't just medical people, um, it's lots of different people, for lots of different reasons, will have these vaccines, obviously we don't give babies the GMO vaccines, but lots of adults will have them because they want to give back to society and they want to help in um, research, um, but also from the Right back to the basics, to the to, to school nursing and things. Yes, we did have records of everybody that had it, and if there was a trip to Africa or somewhere, and the, the, the parents said that, that the children couldn't have those travel vaccines, then the child wouldn't come on the trip, and that was just the way of it, because, you, as you say, it's not fair to, to the other children, um, or if they come back and potentially leave the school. So there was a, uh, that sort of side of things. Um, but I do think that... It is the pre. It is before school, and um, in complete uh, agreement with what you were saying, and getting primary health care better, getting more information during pregnancy to young people, because families are more widespread as well. And it used to just be, you know, your mother did this, your grandparents did this. This is what we did, and we're still some of us of the generation where vaccines were invented, and they they stop disease and that was phenomenal so people were all for that we'll go for that but we've these generation now is, is completely different they've forgotten all that that's not part of their their psyche their upbringing so that's perhaps the younger generation that that's maybe why we're sort of falling away from it and again we've just got to get the knowledge back there get the information back there and encourage and support and answer questions and all of those things at a much earlier stage, preschool, before yeah. they even got to that stage. Thanks very much. Cheers. Shirley? Um, I'm not sure I want to say anything now, except to say that you've made me think quite seriously about the generational thing. Um, and I think there is something there about what we took for granted, or at least what you just did, because you saw it as part of a common good 60 years ago, you know, the little sugar thing. Um, and, and how that has changed generationally. I think it's something interesting to think a bit more about. Thanks. And, and was there anybody else? Okay, I'm going to throw one in afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the lack of disease is really powerful, isn't it? Because this generation mm -hmm. have no experience of these diseases. They're sort of textbook things, even though we had 1,000 cases of measles last year. Most people don't experience them. So you're talking about diphtheria. 
Victorian disease. Polio yeah. as well. Okay, thanks. Right, sorry. Hi, I'm Beth. I haven't spoken yet. I don't know anything really about vaccines and things. Um, I work in education outreach. Um, but I don't think there is a common good. I think that's anymore. I think that's the, the reason for it. All of these sources of information are so uh, multifaceted and you know, people are kind of overwhelmed with all of this. So of course you're going to get multiple debates and points of view. So when people you know, pipe up and are a bit sceptical about things, you can't really blame them because we've blessed them with so many different you know, points of view and sources of information. So really it's uh, you know, a, a result of um, dem- a democratic society. Okay, I mean, I just wanted to sort of pick up a little bit on what you were just saying about one thing that really struck me and shocked me a bit when I was asking people about this question um, was, the, I think, the mean-spiritedness of some of the responses um, in, in terms of, um, you know, basically blaming, blaming stupid parents as they saw it, anti-vaxxers, um, very little tolerance for religious belief, uh, shockingly so, um, and you know it was, it was felt like there was a bit of a trajectory towards you know this course this should be mandatory. Um, I'd asked them about whether there should be exempt, exemptions for um, medical reasons or philosophical or religious reasons. Well, medical reasons, yes, of course. Um, religious, perhaps, probably not. In the US, where this has been mandatory for a while, um, there were exemptions. But then there's been a few outbreaks, and suddenly we've got the exemptions being taken away, and it feels like this 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 there's a slight sort of authoritarian Except direction. This is heading. Doctors are falsifying medical exemptions, so you can play the yeah. system. That's the whole point of your yeah. thing. You can play the system. It's not yeah. anyway. So that's just a doubt and sort of uh, 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 um, musing about where it might go. But what? Final thoughts? Um, well, I think what you're describing is the, is the character of public discourse across the board now is more, and we've seen this around Brexit and everything, the, the public debate has begun the whole proliferation of Twitter and everything is more intemperate and abusive than it used to be. And that's, that's a, there's a decline in civility in discussion of these, these matters. And there is a, indeed, we've uh, you know, seen this sort of um, attitudes of you know, contempt and just you know, um, just generally intemperate, uh, uncivil quality of discussion, which is not is very unhelpful in, in all areas in politics and in, in 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 relation to matters of health. But I think there's one point I would emphasise in relation to the whole discussion about the importance of education in relation to this is actually the other thing that's even more important is the question of trust. And that's been the, you know, the, the people have lost trust in figures of authority in society because one of the traditional figures of trust in society was the doctor. And the people have lost trust in, in science to some extent. And that's, that's, that's not a gap that can be made up with facts or information or education. You know, it's something which has to be worked for to re-establish. And we need to recognise some of the forces that have undermined those relations uh, particularly in the in the medical health sphere, which is very important to restoring, the, uh, securing the level of uptake that we need to keep children safe from infectious diseases. Let's thank Mike, everyone.